0: Hi, my name is Luke and this is Inside Industry with IREO, the premier podcast about working with industry to build research partnerships at WSU. Today, we're interviewing Sterling McPherson. He is the head and principal investigator of the Analytics and Psychopharmacology Laboratory, also known as APPLE, and he is an associate professor for the WSU College of Medicine. Sterling, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Luke. Well, thanks for being here. So before we go into your research, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, college, what you like to do in your free time?
1: Sure. So I am what you would probably call, you know, a homegrown guy around here. I actually grew up in the Tri-Cities, so not too far from Spokane. And I graduated high school there and attended Whitworth University here in Spokane. And despite thinking that I was going to go to some far-flung place for graduate school, I was very fortunate and was able to go to WSU for my PhD, actually. I was there from about 2005 until 2010. I graduated with a PhD in experimental psychology with a focus on quantitative methods, and then I did a postdoc with John Roll, Dr. John Roll, up in Spokane, focused on behavioral pharmacology And substance abuse. And as they say, it's been history since then. I've been a faculty member since 2010, and it's been uh, really terrific. WSU has afforded a lot of great opportunity for our research program to get planted and
0: and grow. So um, you're the head of Apple. So could you tell us what Apple focuses on? Sure. So the analytics and psychopharmacology laboratory
1: is really, we are one group that is part of a larger program. And our primary focus is on treatment development. We do collaborate on various projects, but our core focus is on treatment development, usually in the context of phase two, phase three clinical trials for the treatment of addiction. And our primary focus as a lab, and again, while we do some other work that isn't strictly focused on this, our primary focus is on co-addiction. And the reason we have chosen to focus on that is that for a long time, addiction has been studied and is still studied oftentimes as, okay, well you have an alcohol use disorder. Let's treat the alcohol use disorder. Okay. You have an opioid use disorder. Let's treat the opioid use disorder. That approach, while it's made a lot of great strides in the past, The truth is that most people don't have one use disorder. Almost every patient that we've interacted with has at least two addictions. They might have an alcohol use disorder, but they also smoke. Or they have an opioid addiction, but they also use methamphetamine, which is something we're seeing a lot of. The goal is to reduce the public health burden of substance abuse throughout the United States. And our skill set, our collective skill set across our lab is best suited to do that through the development of treatment strategies. And so that's a pretty lofty goal. Uh, I think maybe a more reasonable goal is to develop evidence-based treatments that can pass certain levels of efficacy at an early stage. And in 10, 20 years from now, if we can begin to see those rolled out as effectiveness trials or trials that are done in the real world, with real patients, in a real clinical setting, and have a lasting impact that substantially reduces the burden of substance abuse, even if it's quote unquote, just in Spokane or just in Washington state, that would be an enormous win from my perspective.
0: I see. So going into your research, I know Apple focuses on multidisciplinary or across discipline representation. What does that mean?
1: So right now, we have one technology developed that is in collaboration with industry focused on increasing medication adherence to buprenorphine. So that's a very close collaboration with a company called Pilsey that's out of Seattle. And we're actually just getting ready to launch the pilot trial that we will then launch a second trial to make sure that things work the way that we think they're going to work in this initial study and then launch the second study. This is a PILSI CAP reminder system that, that PILSI has developed and we are now deploying it specifically for patients who suffer from opioid addiction and need buprenorphine. Two other more recent projects that are quite a bit larger in scope. uh, One is trial designed to test the efficacy of zonisamide in the treatment of alcohol use disorder. And zonisamide is a drug that has been on the market for quite a while. It's an anti-epileptic medication. There is some compelling data to show that it can reduce the use of alcohol among patients with an alcohol use disorder. So that's one trial that we're hoping to start. It was just funded in September. We're hoping that it will start in uh, early to late spring of 2021. And then we also just received notice of a second project that is focused on the use of Briniclin or Chantix, which is an anti-smoking medication, but has shown off-target effects on alcohol use disorder And we're going to combine that with a behavioral intervention that we study a lot called contingency management. And contingency management is just the exchange of incentives for a negative urine sample for a targeted substance. In this case, it would be alcohol. And so to what extent can we reinforce or provide incentives for reducing one's alcohol use in combination with a drug like varenicline in order to actually tackle two addictions at once, Uh, alcohol use and smoking. So the focus, that's the focus of both of those projects that are distinctly psychopharmacological in nature. And they're, and they're both in an experimental form as these are both phase two clinical trials.
0: Yeah, those are some good focuses. And I also know that your lab has some featured grant work right now. For example, there's the PAF study that you're working on. What is that?
1: I will describe what the PATH study is, but Dr. Crystal Smith, it was really the person who drove that work. So I will describe it. PATH stands for Population Assessment of Tobacco and Health. It's exactly what it sounds like. The assessment of how does tobacco impact other areas of health. This was data that was collected in adolescence. And I, so I think starting in seventh or eighth grade, all the way up through high school, how does the use of tobacco impact the use of other substances. And so Dr. Smith focused on looking at how does tobacco and cannabis co-use impact one's social development and relationships with their parents and how does age of first use, whether it be tobacco or cannabis, and and by that I mean, how does the age of the very first time they smoked a cigarette or the very first time they use cannabis impact the use of both of those behaviors long term and then how does that subsequently impact relationships with their parents relationships with their peers and a variety of other outcomes and so what Dr. Smith did is in the end she was able to come up with risk profiles for adolescents who used one or two substances and essentially found that the burden of risk increases as someone uses either tobacco and cannabis concurrently, as opposed to using either one of them independently, that increased use increases risk. Most people understand that. I think what is more telling in how Crystal discussed those data was that it changed the profile. So their risk went up in very specific areas related to familial relationships versus social relationships. And so that was the primary outcome of that work.
0: Your app is also working on a grant for an app that monitors alcohol use. Could you elaborate on that?
1: This is a project that we are just completing the first phase of, and the goal of this work is to develop a technology that can monitor and incentivize reductions in alcohol use. One of the ideas that we've been trying to work on here is that if you can effectively get someone to submit breath samples, three times a day and incentivize lower levels of alcohol use, in fact, down to the level of zero, then you can essentially deliver a very potent intervention. If you can deliver that to someone on their phone, it becomes an intervention that is delivered in their pocket, right? I mean, it's an intervention that they have access to throughout the day. Now, I'm not suggesting that it necessarily replace something like intensive outpatient treatment or, or psychosocial counseling. But it could be a really critical adjunctive treatment to that psychosocial counseling. We've also talked about developing it for people who are in recovery, people who just completed 12 weeks of intensive treatment. And this is a way to help them maintain their own sobriety. And so the technology is relatively straightforward. I mean, you provide breath samples using a device called Backtracker. That's something that can be purchased uh, commercially. And when you submit sample, you have access to an app that will take a picture of your face when you just get started with this program. And after that, it will always take a picture of your face while you are providing a sample. It will match that face using facial recognition technology to your baseline image to verify that it is in fact you submitting the sample. And the schedule of the payments that you get are essentially, they're escalating. So the longer you show a certain reduction in drinking, or the longer you show that your breath sample comes back at zero, the more incentives you will get. Now, there's a cap to that. You can only earn so much money for so much absence of alcohol. But the idea we know through a lot of other research that we and other teams have done is that as you escalate the reinforcement or the incentive, that will assist with maintaining a longer and longer window of either reduced use or sobriety, depending on what your goal is. And so we have completed one pilot study just to show that we can actually do this. We are now uh, conducting a second study with a newer version of this technology. If we are successful in that phase, we hope to apply for a larger pool of funding in order to develop it out uh, at a larger scale and uh, do a trial with between two and 300 patients. This first trial will be with
0: 30 patients. Oh, wow. And I also noticed your lab is focusing on how patients are reacting to discontinued opioid therapy. What is it that you're doing?
1: This was part of a project that we did with Dr. Travis Lovejoy, who we are still collaborating with. The study with the Veterans Administration is to examine what happens to an individual's chronic pain level after they are discontinued from opioids. It may come as a surprise to many people to know that while the focus has been on decreasing or even stopping opioid use for many, many patients across the country. What we wanted to examine was what happens to patients who have been on high doses of opioids for their chronic pain for 12 months, and then they are discontinued either at their request or at the provider's request because of changing policies across the country, but in this case, specifically the VA. And what we found was that essentially their pain did not change for the 12 months subsequent to being discontinued off of opioids. Which is very important because that suggests in a large sample, being discontinued off of opioids doesn't impact one's chronic pain on average, which suggests that chronic use of opioids may not be an effective tool for managing people's chronic pain which is something that comes as a surprise to many people because for most, the whole idea of taking opioids is to manage pain. But at least for patients who suffer from chronic pain, what our data suggests is that it actually may not be as effective as what
0: we once thought. So what's in store for the Apple Lab's future? I think
1: there are really two things that we want to focus on. So one is the genetic underpinnings of addiction and not just addiction, but also chronic pain. And actually, I just learned yesterday that myself and my collaborator, Dr. Crystal Smith, received a small grant that will help us kick off that work. And that work will focus on beginning to pull apart what are the genetic and environmental influences that drive tobacco and alcohol use, and how are those associated with long-term chronic pain? And that, taken with some other work we're doing with a faculty member in the College of Medicine, whose name is Dr. Thomas May, who's an expert in genetics and has a variety of in, in industry collaborators. Both of those projects we see as moving us in this direction of understanding the genetic influence of addiction and fortunately also involves collaboration with industry. The other area that we are excited about and, and getting keenly interested in is the area of infectious disease. How does infectious disease supplant potential treatment progress. This has been an area of study within addiction for a long time, but they're usually focused on things like HIV and now hepatitis C, both of which are important public health problems that should be studied further. Our own interest is actually gravitating towards something called antimicrobial resistance. This is an area that other faculty members at WSU have incredible credentials in. People in the College of Veterinary Medicine, many of whom are the world leaders in this area of AMR. We're in the process of trying to start a pilot project in Brazil examining to what extent people who have contracted sexually transmitted diseases been exposed to antibiotics so repeatedly that what I think most people have probably seen and heard of in the news as being a resistance to any type of antibiotic. So when they get sick, there is no antibiotic left that they can use because their body has learned how to avoid those antibiotics utility, which can obviously create enormous public health problems. And 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 we view those as being uh, particularly problematic in lower income countries like Brazil, where antibiotics are cheap and readily accessible and very often prescribed for people with a sexually transmitted disease who also often use drugs of abuse. And are they getting tested? Are they getting treatment for those diseases? And if not, are they developing AMR or antimicrobial resistance? That's an area that we're very interested in. And not just AMR, but some of the other infectious diseases that I listed that are part and parcel of the problem that I'm describing.
0: If people want to get involved with your lab, how could they do so?
1: Yeah, we get requests for undergraduate research assistants, graduate students that want to get involved fairly frequently. They can visit us online. We have uh, all of our, we have a variety of things online, publications and grants and all the sort of normal stuff. But we do also have an email contact in case anybody wants to send an email to our laboratory manager who will get back to them straight away and talk to them about how they might want to get involved. Oftentimes the best way is just to sit in on a lab meeting. And we we have different people give talks on projects that are ongoing, new projects that are proposed, projects that are just getting wrapped up and we're reporting results. But sitting in on a meeting like that is a great way just to get a sense of the kind of day-to-day work that we're doing. And they're also welcome to contact me anytime. WSU is thankfully a public university so if you just google my name Sterling McPherson and WSU my profile should come up and feel free to contact me anytime.
0: Sterling thank you for coming to our show we really appreciate it and I'm Luke Walker and this is Inside Industry with IREA.